Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these things I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, looking at him with sadness, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with men is possible with God. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word this morning, we ask that you would speak. Your servants are here to listen. Guide us in the way of what it means to have no other gods before you. We pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. If you have a Bible available, you may find it helpful to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 5. It was our reading prior to confession. And in verses 6 through 10, we find the first two commandments, also with a short prologue, just a foreword, given to us. And that is our passage that we will be discussing this morning and looking at a broad array of Scripture passages as well. Now, in her award-winning novel, Faith, Jennifer Haig tells the story of an Irish Catholic family living in Boston. And she describes the mother, the matriarch of the family, this way. Only after remarrying did Ma become so fiercely virtuous. Like her cleaning and her counting... Her strictness quells a terrible fear inside her. When their father left, the earth slid out from under her. God would spare her another catastrophe if she were very, very good, if she did everything right. And this is the way many of us relate to God, that we think that if we do everything right, if we're very, very good, then God will somehow let us into heaven and he'll also spare us of any catastrophes that could befall us. And so when we hear things like a sermon series on the Ten Commandments, we get a little anxious. Someone asked the other day, what will you be preaching on? I said the Ten Commandments and there was a deep sigh. (laughs) And if you're feeling that this morning, that is typically because it reflects our tangled views of the gospel that we so oftentimes pervert the grace of God, and that we default to this mother's opinion, that we think that these are rules constructed for giving us advice about how we are to gain God's favor, how we are to become pleasing to Him. But this isn't how it works. This isn't true to the gospel. Because what the law or the Ten Commandments do It guides us in what it means to love God. 
But it is not a means for us to purchase the love of God. And there's an enormous difference between those two things, that something can guide us into what it means to love God and be very different from something that purchases God's love for us. And the law is not a set of rules designed to help you get into a relationship with God. No, rather, the law is designed to help you in your relationship with God, to guide you. It's never meant to purchase or to earn you anything. It's to give you guidance for the road that lies ahead once God has acted on your behalf to save you. And we need to consider where the law begins. Read with me in verse 6. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That this is the beginning word. Before there is any command, here is the statement of God's grace. That God is the one who redeems. That God has brought us out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And so when we hear the word law, we need to know that it begins in grace. A statement of God's redemption. And this is the shape of all Christian ethics that we find in the Bible. When God gives us a command, He first gives us a statement of the condition. And that He's welcomed us into His family. He's bought us. He's secured us. He's redeemed us. He's brought us out of slavery through Jesus. The word brought up out of Egypt is an interesting verb because it isn't just referring to geography. It has the connotations of something being purchased or victory being won. And so God single-handedly has purchased you. God single-handedly has won a victory on your behalf. He has delivered you. He's redeemed you through Jesus' death and resurrection, bringing you into relationship with Himself. And now He gives you a law, not so that you can earn something from Him, but in order to guide you in that relationship. And so he teaches us what it is to love him, our Redeemer, through this law. And as we study these commands, what's crucial for us is to remember the proper order of the relationship of grace and gratitude. That gratitude always follows grace, and grace is always first. It will always be the first word in our relationship with God, and that is why the Ten Commandments begin here. I am the Lord your God who delivered you. And so keep that in mind throughout this whole series. And it's on these grounds, though, that the first two commandments, which deal with idolatry, make sense. It's on the grounds of grace and gratitude that it all begins to come together, that this God who saves us that what He commands of us is that we be loyal to Him, that we have no other gods. And so what is incumbent on us this morning is to explore what does it mean to have no other gods? What are we positively to do and what are we negatively to avoid? And so we'll look at this under three headings. And the first is this, that we are to remove all idols. It's straightforward in the command. You shall have no other gods before me. Or it could be translated, you shall have no other gods beside me. That there are to be no rivals for our affections. That we are to purge anything that begins to take the place of God or sit alongside God. 
And friends, the proper response to this God who has redeemed us, who has brought grace into our life and taken us out of the house of slavery that was sin, is that we then be loyal to him, that we belong to him. Several years ago, I was in a conversation with a fellow pastor, and he was opening up about his life and sharing some of the historical experiences he had had. And he began talking about one particularly painful episode, and a certain pastor's name was used in the conversation. And he didn't have very much positive to say about him. And he talked about how there had been incredible hardship that he had suffered. He didn't know that uh, that particular pastor was a friend of mine and uh, who, had been, who had been a mentor to me and who had helped me in, in different periods of life. And so at the end of his explanation of his dislike for this individual, I said, can I offer you a different perspective on blankety-blank? He said, sure. I said, well, several years ago, I was in a ditch. I was upside down. I didn't know right from left. I didn't know my way through the politics I was navigating. I was hurt and confused. And someone told me, why don't you call him? Give him a call. He will understand your circumstances. He knows what you're dealing with, and he'll give you some advice. And so out of the blue, I'd shaken the man's hand one time. I called him, left a message with his secretary. Didn't really expect to hear back, but that's just how desperate I was. Two minutes later, and sometimes I get this treatment because of my name, I will get a call back fairly quick because I'll just drop it out there. He was still alive at that point. It doesn't work anymore. I get a call back, and what was said to me was, well, Chuck, what I would love to do is I would love to fly down to meet you. You come out to the airport, and we will share lunch together, we'll pray, we'll be able to talk for a couple hours, and then I'm going to go back home. I said, are you sure? (laughs) Are you sure you want to interrupt your Tuesday in that way, that you want to take your time to do that for someone that you hardly know who's really confused and distressed? He said, yes, that's how I'd like to spend my Tuesday. It'd be my privilege. And so that's what we did on that Tuesday. And you can imagine the galvanizing impact that had on me. And so when I was listening to my friend trash his reputation, what did it do in me? I was loyal to this man. This man who had bought me with sacrifice, this man who had in large ways redeemed me and helped me come to my aid at great expense to himself with nothing to gain, it was not difficult for me to be loyal to him because I knew what he had done for me. And that is the way that our faith works as well. That with our eyes on the sight of what God has done, that he's redeemed us, that he's brought us out of slavery, out of just abject poverty, conditions that are so poor, out of the house of sin and all the ways that sin ravages us, of course we're loyal to him. And perhaps the issue that goes on for us is when when we don't take our loyalty seriously is because we don't really take the house of bondage seriously, that we haven't really understood what it is to be captured by sin and captivated to it. But when we know And we know what this God has done for us in Jesus. Loyalty becomes the natural reflex and response. And so the big question for us is where do we struggle with it? Where do we find it so hard? 
Because the loyalty makes sense when we understand what God has done, but yet we know that it's also so easy inside of our hearts to serve two masters. Patrick Miller, who's a commentator on this passage, he writes this. He says, the issue is not simply replacing the God you have with another one, but being attracted by and succumbing to multiple claims on your obedience. And so he said, look, it's not just a matter of becoming a polytheist. Okay, it's not just very formal apostasy and finding another God, but he said, you know, this issue of having no other gods and having no other rivals is also about rejecting claims of obedience that other things in your life put on you. It's very helpful. We read this morning from Luke 18, which is a perfect story of a man dealing with something that was claiming his obedience. And what was it? the rich young man and his money. He says to Jesus, I've kept all the commands. I've done these things since my youth. And how does Jesus respond? Knowing the man's heart, he sees through the issues. And he says, one thing you lack, go and sell all that you have. Because he knew where the man's treasure was, where his functional trust in life really was resting And it was resting in his finances, in his security, in the social prestige that that bought him and afforded him. This is what he trusted in. And it had a claim of obedience on him that he couldn't say no to it. He leaves Jesus' presence and he leaves it sad. He wouldn't disobey it. And this is where we struggle This is where other masters creep into our hearts, where they lay claim to us, and we will be obedient to them and simultaneously be disobedient to God. And so this raises the question for us, what is it? Is it children? Is it your reputation? Is it your financial security? Is it your career? But what can lay claim to your obedience? where you would want to follow and have that thing more than you would want to follow God. Because this is where the first commandment lands in our lives. This is what it means to keep it. It is to purge ourselves of those rivals. Psalm 24 asks the question, Who has clean hands and a pure heart? Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? And it says, those who have clean hands and a pure heart those who do not lift up their soul to what is false. And the lifting up your soul to what is false and the clean hands and the pure heart are all connected to this idea of idolatry. And so we want to purge ourselves, being loyal to this God who has bought us and redeemed us, who has done everything on our behalf, allowing gratitude to flow from the grace that He gives. And so this is the first thing. We remove the, idol, the, we remove the, the rivals. Second is this, in keeping this command to have no other gods, is that we remember. One of the things about the book of Deuteronomy is that we have the Ten Commandments given to us in chapter 5, and then the rest of the book gives us extensive legislation. There are many laws that multiply through the book of Deuteronomy, and the best way to understand the book is that those laws that come after chapter 5 are amplifications of the ten commands that God gives us in Deuteronomy 5. 
And particularly what we find in chapter 6 through 11 is a sermon given by Moses in which he is blowing out the idea of the first commandment to have no other gods. Okay, so it's an expansion. Here's what it means, and that's where we're going to be developing these ideas. And so the second is that we remember. If you'll turn to chapter 6 in verse 12. God is speaking of the danger that Israel will face when they're brought into the promised land. And then in verse 12 is this warning, Then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by His name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and He destroy you from off the face of the earth. And the context is is that there was going to be abundance. And that Israel would have all that it needed. And that they needed to take care. It's oftentimes used as a greeting in the south. To take care, or not a greeting, as, as a departure to take care. Take good care of yourself. And what it means is to guard your heart. To make sure that your heart is not given over to something else, to being self-satisfied and self-sufficient. To forget that it's God who gives everything. And in remembering, two things happen to us, though. The first is that we simply give thanks. This is what remembering involves. That it is God who gives that He gives us life and breath and our being, that He gives us salvation freely through Jesus. And so when we remember what we are doing is giving thanks, acknowledging the facts of the case, turning our thanks back to God. Now the second thing we do when we remember is that we manage not to grow proud. I want you to turn over to Deuteronomy 9. In verse 4, Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land, whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going to possess their land." Again in verse 6, Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. And so do you see the point of remembrance here? It's to remember who you are. That you not become conceited. That yes, we are to remember in order to give thanks, and we are to remember in order to humiliate ourselves. That it's not because of our righteousness, it's not because of our earning or deserving that God has called us to be His people in order to use us for His purposes in the world. That there's nothing particularly great about us, that we were just like the mass of everyone else, but God sanctified us, He cleansed us, He washed us through Jesus. And remembering is part of keeping this first commandment because it's remembering that God single-handedly did this on our behalf and we give thanks to Him. Now, growing up as a kid in the South, I grew up around that tradition of Southern folk wisdom, filled with one-liners. 
Some of these are so amusing that I could stand here and tell you about them all day. But there were certain class of one-liners that were used, and they were used to summarize situations and also simultaneously as an extreme put-down. One of my favorites was when someone would leave town and then come back to the hometown, and they would act differently than they'd had before. And the phrase went like this, he's done forgotten who he is. He's forgotten who he is. And it was a summary that they thought they were better than they were. You know, and they thought they were better than everybody else. And friends, part of biblical faith, part of Christianity is remembering, not forgetting who you are. That yes, you were a slave just like everyone else. And God bought and redeemed you. He's given you this incredible gift. And he's given you abundance that you can't even quite understand And keeping the first commandment is giving thanks to God for all those gifts of creation and redemption that he brings into your life. Not becoming haughty and forgetting who you are. The third piece to keeping this commandment, to loving God alone, is that we trust. Further down in chapter 9, we come to verse 23. And when the Lord sent you from Kadesh Barnea, saying, Go up and take possession of the land that I have given you, then you rebelled against the commandment of the Lord your God and did not believe him or obey his voice. You have been rebellious against the Lord from the day that I knew you. And this is telling the story that's actually found in Numbers 13 and 14, in which God commanded Israel to send spies into the land, and they were to go and see all that the land had produced and all that it held in store for them. And the spies came back, and the people's hearts were filled with fear. They heard the report of the strong cities and the the giant men, and suddenly they rebelled against the Lord. God had promised that the land belonged to them, that he would remove their enemies, and yet they faltered in fear. They didn't want to obey the command because it felt like too much. The people in Numbers 14 begin to say, it would be better for us to go back to Egypt. Moses has brought us out here into the open, and we will all be killed. And friends, this was a failure to observe the first commandment. That the first commandment is not just about being a monotheist, philosophically committed to the fact that there's only one God, but it is to be in relationship with this God is what it means to keep the first commandment, to trust him, to follow him, to obey what he says. In Exodus 17, at another moment of Israel in the wilderness, they asked the question, is the Lord among us or not? And that is a key question in keeping the first commandment. Is God with us? Will God provide? Can we trust God? Because our confession of faith that we find in Psalm 46 is that God is our refuge. God is our strength. He's a very present help in trouble. And that's what it means to be a monotheist. Is to say, yes, this God is good. Yes, this God delivers on his promise. In this God, we can trust. And there will be many moments of temptation and struggle and trial. 
But to keep the first commandment is to trust that this God will deliver on what He says. And are you actively trusting Him? Are you believing that His promises are a gigantic yes to you in Christ? That everything that He promises you, He will fulfill. That He will make good. Are you submitting to His claim? Or does fear drive you off? Does it make you shrivel back? Is your obedience evident? Or is it carefully negotiated? This far I will go. No more. We are to trust Him. To entrust ourselves to Him. And this is what it means to keep the first commandment. It is to remember this God. It is to trust this God. It is to purge the rivals from our hearts. And of course, in the face of this law, it functions like a mirror. It allows us to see ourselves, and we see all the lack of trust. We see the rivals creeping up in our hearts. We see that we fail to remember. And this is where it's so desperately important for us to remember that this God has saved us. And He exposes our sins through His law, and He also guides us. That He leads us in the way. And that He's teaching us what it means to love Him as He leads us to the promised land, as He takes us into His new world. And so take the invitation of these Ten Commandments over this fall to hear His Word carefully, to search your hearts, to allow Him to remove the rivals. It will expose you if you're supple to this Word. And in that repentance and in that turning, this is where we find life. We find God meeting us. And so let's take up God's Word and let's study it carefully. Let's heed it, remembering it, and giving thanks to Him. Let's pray. Father, as we read Your Word this morning, we know that our hearts are so often divided and that we can easily give ourselves over to other masters. We thank You that You have saved us, that we have nothing to be arrogant about in front of You, nothing to brag about, that it's not because of our righteousness that You have sent our Lord Jesus into the world. And Lord, we pray in that humility that we would learn to follow after You, to trust You, and to serve You. Teach us what it means to have no other rivals in our hearts. And so, Lord, may we belong wholeheartedly to You, knowing that You are among us and that You make good on every promise. May we not be like the Israelites in the desert and desire to go back to the house of slavery. May we know how bad it is and how good Your salvation and grace are. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.